Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 19, and we're looking at the years between 1679 and 1700, and developments in both the Cape and the interior of the subcontinent. Last episode, we heard how new governor Simon van der Stel, who arrived in 1679, began a rapid expansionist policy in the Cape, including building two new towns, Stellenbosch and Drakenstein. The last two decades of the 17th century and the first two of the 18th are regarded as the most important in the early history of South Africa, at least with regard to colonization. After 1707, the VOC effort at peopling the country then slowed significantly. It was the fear of the British, then the French, that had driven the Dutch to make a decision to increase settlers in the Cape between the 1660s and the 1700s. The precarious nature of trading cattle with the Khoi prompted the Heeren 17 back in Amsterdam to go ahead with this colonizing experiment. Towards the end of the long war against Louis XIV of France, the authorities at the Cape had made a great deal of preparation for the expected French invasion. The French peril ended with the peace in Nijmegen in 1678, which coincided with the arrival of new governor Simon van der Stel. A flood of VOC commissioners of various sorts then poured into the Cape over the next decade. First came the ex-governor-general van Goens, followed by his son, an ordinary councillor from Salon, then councillor extraordinary Daniel Haynes, who pitched up to investigate False Bay. He also tinkered with the currency being used. More about that in coming podcasts. But also, following the commissioner road to the Cape, was Admiral of the Dutch fleet, Voter Falkenheer. Hendrik Adrian van Reerde was also dispatched to the Cape on behalf of the Heeren 17. Van Reerde had a major impact on Cape bureaucracy. He arrived with carte blanche to set the Dutch East Indian Empire in order and was most impressed by Simon van der Stel and his expansionism. Then van Reerde tried to sort out the semi-chaos in the Cape administration and announced he'd fixed the number of seats on the Council of Policy at eight. These councils had caused van der Stel much trouble as sometimes they met on board visiting ships and bizarrely he wasn't always invited to the meetings. The eight council members must include in future the governor, the Edel Heer, as they called him, councillor extraordinaire of India, Akaa Saman van der Stel, the two chief military officers, the treasurer, secretary, chief salesman, garrison bookkeeper and cashier. Van Rieder was also eyeing the level of corruption in the Cape, which was high, and announced that he'd also fixed the membership of the high court at eight officials, and two senior burger councillors were to be appointed annually, reminding everyone that relatives could not be allowed to serve together. Eight was regarded as the ideal number in the tiny colony when it came to administrative officials. But they could serve in succession, and this was good news because Simon wanted his son to take over the family governorship. By now, the majority of children at the Cape were those of slaves, and the majority of those had been fathered by Dutch soldiers and passing sailors. This little colony was gathering momentum. The population began to increase step by step and placing increased burden on the administrators. The directors managed to send out a number of Dutch and German settlers after initially balking at the request, and by now slaves were being freed, servants and soldiers were taking their letters of freedom, and Van der Stel indulged in press-ganging at the same time. It got so bad that the VOC formally warned him about this habit of disembarking and keeping artisans in the Cape who are destined for India must stop. 
Ultimately and ironically, considering the Dutch-French war, salvation really came indirectly from France. There had long been French-speaking Walloons in the United Provinces of Holland who had fled from the Spanish terror at the end of the 16th century. These refugees were now being joined by the Huguenots who had abandoned France. That was in response to King Louis XIV's severe view of anyone who had a reformed faith. Some Huguenots now fled to Brandenburg, others to England or to the American colonies. But many went to the free Netherlands. It was closer. However, these people were an embarrassment for Holland because they were organized into existing branches of Dutch congregations and sometimes they actually made up the majority. Naturally, after years of failing to attract large numbers of settlers to the Cape, the Heeren 17 regarded the Huguenots as a pool of possible immigrants to exploit. Some of the Frenchmen knew how to make wine, brandy and vinegar. There were also many young women who had survived King Louis's terror and would make desirable wives for Simon van der Stel's gallant bachelors, as he called them. The VOC then offered Huguenots and another group called the Piedmontese an oath of allegiance, then a free passage to the Cape, money for equipment, which they could repay in kind over time. They were to remain in the Cape for five years until they were released. The Piedmontese said, Ni danku, no thank you. But around 200 Huguenots sailed for the Cape and arrived at the end of 1688 and into 1689. They were treated as free-born Dutch men and women, and by the time the hurried immigration ended, they had numbered around one-third of the total number of free Dutch. However, their significance far outweighed their numbers for a number of reasons. Firstly, they were a higher social class with more skills than the original Dutch soldiers. Secondly, they were highly skilled in vine and olive dressing and were artisans. Thirdly, most were young and married with growing families. Fourthly, they had no fatherland. France was a hellhole of Catholic hate for these people and they weren't always integrated back in Holland. There was a political danger. The Dutch were afraid of the French and with good reason as Louis XIV was still sniffing around in Europe looking for easy prey. The Dutch had just ended a war with the French and now these French speakers were arriving in large numbers in a Dutch colony. Back in the Cape, there was much whispering and pointing. Weren't these the people that had caused so much trouble for previous governors of the Cape, particularly their passing fleets? They remembered how Montevigou had planted French lilies along Saldana Bay shore and how Commander van Kwaalberg had been dismissed for provisioning a French squadron ahead of a VOC fleet. Now there were close to 200 French men and women invading the Cape. Simon van der Stel, of course, was torn between happiness that his requests for immigrants had been heard and consternation because they were French. Immigrants, who are generally harder working than others, shake up the status of locals. We know that to this day, and the Huguenots were to prove no different. Their entrepreneurial energy was a local shot in the arm for everyone, except the Khoi, of course, as we'll hear in the coming podcasts. Previously, when English and French vessels docked in Table Bay, Van der Stel was told to only supply them with water. After the wars of the mid to late 17th century in Europe, Foreign powers complained, and Van der Stel began to sell them meat and vegetables as well, particularly the English and the French. For example, in 1686, Baudricourt's French flotilla of six ships anchored in Table Bay on its way to Siam, and Simon van der Stel took extreme precautions to ensure they didn't steal his all-important meat and veggies. And yet, a few months later, he accepted a medallion of gratitude from a visiting French captain, and then was promptly castigated by the Himraden. Talk about being in an invidious position and confused. So here he was, faced with 200 Huguenots. 
He hurried most of them away from the port of the Cape and into his new colonies along the Berg River Valley. He had already planted 23 Dutch and German families at Drakenstein, so he naturally deposited the Huguenots along the Berg River and at French Corner, or Franzhoek, as we South Africans call it. Then van der Stel had another social conundrum to solve. He had interspersed the Huguenots along the rivers between other nationalities, the Dutch and German and the French, and the French were not happy. A delegation of Huguenots arrived complaining that they didn't like to be surrounded by these stout burghers and wanted to live amongst their own. Van der Stel was actually indulging in a little social engineering. He decided to break up the French and turn them into Dutch men and women. What he was actually doing was turning them into Afrikaners, people forged in Africa with a new language and a new narrative based on the Bible. They were to regard themselves as God's chosen people, sent to civilize an uncivilized land, and their language would end up a hodgepodge of Dutch, French, and other languages. Van der Stel was also aware of what had happened in Quebec, in Canada, where the French had formed themselves into an entire state which continues to challenge the Canadian government to this day with demands about language, culture, and history. So more than 400 years ago, the VOC governor realized that allowing a different European culture to emerge in a startup colony was not a wise move. They must integrate, and the easiest and quickest method is to make them change their language. And so French, German, and Dutch settlers were interspersed along the Berg River Valley all the way to Paul in 1688, then Wachenmarkers Valley in 1698, and to the land of the Wafferen in 1699. The bulk settled at Franschhoek and Drakenstein, and difficulties immediately arose when it came to this integration. There were now three different European languages being spoken along these riverside farms. How would they talk to each other? At church? Or at the market? Or how would the schools work? The rule at the fort had been easy to enforce. Everyone spoke Dutch, and that was that. Now these free burghers, 50 kilometers away, and more from the central base of Cape Town, had to talk to each other as locals, not Dutchmen or Frenchmen. Paul Roux, who was a parish clerk and schoolmaster in the Stellenbosch district at this time, spoke French and Dutch. But the local Huguenot pastor, Pierre Simon, could speak only French. The parish complained to van der Stel, demanding a French-based education system. They were trying to retain their Frenchness, like they'd heard their colleagues were doing in Quebec in North America. Van der Stel exploded in anger, sending a bad-tempered letter to the hymn and saying, The impertinence of the French! who he said were of a mind to have their own magistrate, commander, and prince to be chosen from the people. The head in 17 replied, and they were a bit more statesmanlike. They consented to a separate consistory of elders and deacons for Drakenstein, but with one very clever sleight of hand. Whomever was installed as local priests and elders and deacons had to be fluent in both French and Dutch. What a brilliant move. Bilingual schoolmasters were sent out from Holland and arrived at Stellenbosch and Drakenstein with an order ringing in their ears. In order to unite our nation by this means. What nation exactly they were talking about you could debate, but this formed the core of the Afrikaner nation and by default the South African nation. Furthermore, van der Stel was ordered to continue making the people live amongst each other and that church services should be held alternately at Stellenbosch in Dutch and at Drakenstein in French. Amalgamation was now only a half-step away. The Huguenots were few and scattered, and their recruitment back in Holland ceased quite rapidly from here on. 
So, no new French speakers arrived, and within a generation, they would be speaking a new language, Afrikaans. Remember, social matters in the Cape were complex, particularly when it came to sex and procreation. By 1685, the governor of the Cape reported that nearly half of the company's slave children under 12 years of age had white fathers, mostly soldiers in the garrison or sailors from visiting ships. As we're going to hear through the series, the freedom of the felt for the Dutch farmers included taking African and Khoi lovers when there were no others. They were not averse to having children with slaves. It became a young Dutch farm boy's rite of passage and continues to cause much tension in South Africa today, the memory of these things. Strangely, during apartheid, this fact was quietly filed away under the whites don't have sex with blacks and never have section of history, which is a bit like trying to hide millions of mixed-race South Africans under a copy of King James's Bible. Things were moving in the Cape. By 1689, Van der Stel had occasion to meet a sailor shipwrecked in what he thought was Terra de Natal, uh, south of Durban. Captain W. Kneif of the Dutch East India Company managed to make his way back to the peninsula after living amongst these people for a year. He told Van der Stel that the people who helped him were peaceable and obliging. Two other sailors had already been living amongst the people who we now know with the Tosa, and the sailors are thought to have been wrecked in the far south of Natal or the north of present-day Transkei. One was Adrian Jans, who was a boatswain, and Jan Peters was the other, a young boy. They had been wrecked on the Stavanisa. Other surviving sailors had been distributed amongst the villages along the coast and inland and were well treated. These two had spent 30 months living in the region, and when van der Stel met them, they had many stories to tell. It would be impossible to buy any slaves there, for they would not part with their children or any other connection for anything in the world, these sailors reported, and van der Stel duly wrote in his log. Loving one another with the most remarkable strength. We South Africans have a word for this, it's called Ubuntu, but it doesn't mean that conflicts did not exist between the people, only a respect for each other, as we'll see. Their riches consist of cattle and assegais, as also copper and iron. Their shields, clothes and other furniture are burnt on the death of the owner, wrote Van der Stel. He learned that the country was exceedingly fertile and quite heavily populated. It is precisely this increased demography that led to resource-based wars in the coming centuries as leaders jostled for power in an increasingly populated landscape. In their intercourse with each other, they are very civil, polite and talkative, saluting each other, whether male or female, young or old, whenever they meet, what is their news, and whether they have learned any new dances or tunes. The sailors warned, however, that anything left of value would disappear, and all travellers were well aware they could only travel through the kingdoms by handing over everything of real value before they began their journey. Revenge was something that was settled by the cause of kings. He would give sentence on the spot after hearing the dispute in person. If the conflict was too disruptive, he would refer the matter to a more senior or older king in his neighborhood. One may travel 200 or 300 miles through the country without any cause of fear from men, provided you go naked and without iron or copper, wrote Van der Stel. By naked he meant bereft of metal objects, which were highly prized. Without any iron or copper for these things give inducement to the murder of those who have them. Then Janssen the boy also reported that there was a very old Portuguese man living amongst the people of this area. This Portuguese had a wife, children, cattle and land. He spoke only the African language, having forgotten everything, his God included, wrote the Dutch governor. This pattern had developed since the first Portuguese ship was shipwrecked 
on the long coast in the southeast of Africa. The effect of mixing would not go unnoticed and shock the straight-laced Victorian English when they arrived later. Precisely 50 years were to lie between the arrival of Jan van Riebeck at the Cape and the first recorded overland contact between the Dutch colonists and the cattle-rich, hospitable and peaceful people who took in the survivors of the Stavenis, the Causa. They had been taking in these sailors for more than a hundred years and the marriages led to a whole group of new people already roaming the coastal lands of southern Africa. They were Causa, but their ancestry was part European. Their skin was sometimes lighter, but they were Causa and remained Causa. Unfortunately, by 1702, the Tosa and the Dutch farmers would begin what turned into a traditional war against each other, lasting hundreds of years. Meanwhile, the shipwrecked sailors of the more than 200 ships that sank along the southeast coast of Africa would sometimes return via the carp and the taverns would thrum with tales of the Tosa living beyond Algoa Bay and other peoples northwards towards Maputo. The picture at first was delightful before the clashes began. The Tosa possessed huge herds of cattle and were clearly wealthy by the standards of the day. This served as a lure into the unknown territory where a part of Dutch hunters at Tosa collided near the Great Fish River about a hundred miles northeast of Algoa Bay in early 1700s. That was an immense distance from the Cape in those days and involved extremely rough travel for months to get there. This lure of the hinterland had existed from the earliest days of the Dutch settlement the blue hue of the Hottentot Hollands Mountains was a two-day journey by wagon from Dakarp. Imagine how far away Algoa Bay was to these people. Like the immigrant experience in America, the Europeans arrived in Africa and were struck by the vastness of the interior of a continent that was both mysterious and fearsome. The first name given the Tosa was the Chabona, derived from the Tosa salutation of Sakubona. Hello. The Dutch thought that these were the people of the fabled kingdom of gold, the Manumutapa, who were of course nothing like the Tosa. They were the Shona Empire on the Zimbabwean plateau, who sent gold, copper and iron, along with ivory skins and sometimes slaves, to the Arabs and the Portuguese. Van der Stel, to his credit, realised very quickly they were not the same people because of Captain Knaif's detailed descriptions. But he also knew they were wealthy, their land was fertile, they had tons of ivory to trade and they were living in settlements and farming. This was not what the Khoi were doing, as we know by now, who were pastoralists. It's important to end this episode with a reminder about geography. Africa is substantially composed of high interior plateaus surrounded by coastal zones. Each of these are very different and have an effect on human societies. Most of the European experience of these places was along the dark and dense coastal plains near the equator, full of jungles and forests and sinister. Along the east coast, the Arabs, Europeans and Asians kept themselves offshore as far as possible on islands and islets, uh, spurs and reefs or isthmuses, if there is such a word. Only at the tip of Africa was there a promise of a reversal of these circumstances in the temperate and healthier climate that covered the Cape and surrounds. Yes, the wild animals existed. The semi-desert was a thirst land of incredible size. It was very dangerous. But as one advances northeast, the escarpment wall, the mountainous terrain of fold mountains that run parallel to the coast, draws back from the shore the further you travel. The widening green shelf between mountains and sea grows from the Cape into Natal, and this region also receives the most rainfall in South Africa. Between mountains and sea, all is green, watered, and often extremely lush, with tracts of splendid and in those days impenetrable forest. Beyond the mountains lies the drier country, becoming steadily drier with every mile inland. It's important to keep that in mind 
as we follow the next phase of the story of South Africa. Next episode, we'll focus on the turn of the century and enter the 1700s, where the Khoi were eventually forced out of most of the Cape Peninsula and scattered northwards, while steady expansion northeasterly was to lead to the first clashes between the Tosa and the Dutch. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, or contact me directly on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. You can also email me through the site desmondlatham.blog or my website desmondlatham.com. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.